Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, it's Sophia and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is a returning favorite of the podcast, Supreme Court lawyer and Georgetown law professor Neil Katyal. Neil achieved tenure at Georgetown at breakneck speed, served as national security advisor to the Justice Department, and is a winner of the Edmund Randolph Award. But the achievement that garnered Neil well-deserved renown was his first Supreme Court argument in which he defended the basic constitutional rights of fair trial and anti-torture to prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. That victory led to the upholding of the Geneva Conventions around the world. And I think this moment speaks to the core of Neil's character. He is a person who believes more than anything in the spirit of the law, and in justice as a blind force greater than ourselves. In our last episode together, Neil said that he felt he had a duty to act in the common good. And I can't think of anything that exemplifies that better than extending basic decency and human rights to everyone, regardless of their charges, background, or ideologies. Neil continues to teach law, uplift aspiring attorneys, and put together arguments for the Supreme Court. He even has his own podcast, Courtside, which breaks down major litigation, political issues, and legal news into bite-sized portions. I tune into Courtside on IGTV Live every week. It is one of my favorite things to do with my time, and I'm sure that after today's interview, you will feel the same. Neil is an inspiring, principled guy that I find remarkably easy to talk to. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Neil, I'm so grateful that you have taken an hour out of your time to come back on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I have so many questions for you. I suppose the first of which is just, 
how are you? Because there is an awful lot going on in the United States uh, legal sphere right now. And I'm just wondering how you're managing to, to do all of this and simultaneously educate the public in all of these segments that you're doing every day. Well, first of all, thank you, Sophia, for having me. You're such a voice for good and light and education in this world. And so, you know, when I was on last time, I had so much fun and and really appreciated the opportunity. And so I'm glad to be back. Thank I'm, you. I'm doing okay. You know, it's been a very intense year, particularly on the George Floyd uh, prosecution. Um, but that's going to mostly wrap up next week with Derek Chauvin sentencing. And then we've got the mm. trial of the other three defendants, which will take place in March of next year, but that's on a now a slower trajectory. So it was a very intense time because we're really trying to ready and get everything done on a really fast schedule. I mean, basically he was tried in under a year from when George Floyd was murdered. So that's a you know very aggressive timeline, but um, we met it and obviously, you know, the result uh, speaks for itself. So so that's been an enormous amount of time and energy, but also energizing to work with this team of people. Keith Ellison, the attorney general, was just a phenomenal kind of ringleader for all of us. And all the prosecutors were just lovely people as well as you know committed to the right thing. Um, and George Floyd's family was just like inspirational. And so mm-hmm. all that together just made it really one of the more uplifting experiences of my life for all the hours and tough things that happened during it. So in general, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm seeing Washington, D.C. open up now, people in the streets, going to restaurants, even going to movie theaters and seeing in the Heights and things like that. So <laughs> very exciting. Um, and, you know, what a miracle of science. So, you know, I feel very grateful right now. Yeah, science is a miracle indeed. I, I just keep thinking about how lucky I feel to be alive in a time of modern medicine. And I think feeling so fortunate also makes me feel frustrated because I can't fathom that anyone could critique uh, modern medicine, but I guess you know we we do live in this really interesting time where so you don't believe things... in the microchips. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. I'm like, it's weird that everyone running around with a smartphone, literally tagging their locations on their Instagram and Facebook posts, says that the government's going to need to chip us to track us. I'm like, you know, you have a tracker in your pocket. Right. I don't really think anybody cares where you're going. Yeah, I hate it's... to break it. To Exactly. You know, it does, it does, as I, you know, not to get too dark, but it does cause me some worry that if we can politicize that vaccines, like what can't you politicize? I mean, there are hard questions facing society, income inequality, race, you know, so many hard things. But if you can politicize literally science, um, Mm -hmm. then you can do it to anything. um, And other nations like Russia can exploit those divisions. So it is Mm -hmm. a scary time. I'm really curious about that because. When we talk about these things that have been politicized that should exist as simple fact, you know, a vaccine is a good thing. It's the reason humans are alive today. When you see a man murdered on tape, we should all agree that murder is murder when we witness it. And and yet we do live in a time where there's a lot of pushback about facts and a lot of things are being weaponized. And and even calls from academia to stop whitewashing our history are being met with the banning of critical race theory while you have Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress making horrific comparisons 
which are just so confounding, comparisons to requirements to meet public health standards, to being in the Nazi camps at Auschwitz. I mean, just really horrific stuff. And we're living in a time where we're seeing rises in you know, police violence and anti-Semitic hate crimes and violence against the AAPI community. And, and I just wonder what your message would be to stay hopeful. Well, what a great set of questions. So, so first of all, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a national embarrassment yeah. and doesn't belong to be even in the same city as the United States Capitol, let alone inside mm. of it. But she's representative of something. She's not, I mean, she is the source of the problem, but she also mirrors the problem. And the problem mm. is, you know, a, an ignorance and a kind of loss of truth. Like, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, you know, Sophia, I doubt you were on the high school debate team, but I was. Um, and um, <laughs> It's one of my favorite <laughs> things about you. <laughs> so um, I was not cool enough to not be on it. And one of the things in high school debate that happens is that you argue literally anything. Like you go in and you say nuclear war is good or, you know, crazy, crazy positions. And you know it's a joke. You know that. You're just sitting there trying to actually make a point, win a contest. The problem is that kind of mentality has morphed over now into our actual national discourse mm -hmm. so that you've got people like her saying these crazy outlandish things um, or the former president. I mean, just insane, preposterous things that no rational human being should believe. And I mm -hmm. agree with you. One big reason for that is the breakdown of history education, of civics education in this country. Mm. And the way we find truth is by, and understand that there is a core set of ideals and beliefs about our nation, is to go back and study what we've done before and the progress we've made and not to whitewash mm. it. I mean, there's some beautiful lessons in history, like from the creation of the First Amendment or the ratification mm -hmm. of the 13th Amendment um, or the Equal Protection Clause. There's also a lot of dark moments. Like I've been struck, you know, two weeks ago was the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre mm -hmm. in 1921. I had no idea until I watched HBO's Watchmen that mm -hmm. that had happened. I mean, mm -hmm. I learned this from a fictional TV show, what, three mm -hmm. years ago. You know, I took a lot of history classes at fancy universities. I wasn't taught that. So there is some breakdown here. And, um, you know, some people are taught it and some aren't. And that contributes to this divide. And so mm -hmm. literally you have people talking past each other a lot of times. And so one of the things I really want to do in my next big project is basically to revitalize civics education in this country through, mm -hmm. you know, a fun TV show and things like that that try and, you know, teach these lessons. Please let me know how I can be part of it. I'm ready to go. I'm <laughs> signing up. I'll even just get coffee on set. I'm there. I'm all in. All right. All right. Great. So, <laughs> but I feel like that is so needed right now. And particularly as I think about what happened on January 6th in my city. Mm -hmm. and blood being spilled in the Capitol building. People need to learn. And maybe you aren't going to reach some of these die-hard yahoos. I understand that. But there's a next generation of people coming up. And we have mm -hmm. to use modern technology not to divide us, which has been happening, but to try and glue us together because there are incredible traditions in this country. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we need to tell those stories. Does your passion for all of this, I mean, obviously you have such a, a lauded career, 
but do you do you trace your passion? I, I know we talked in our last conversation when you came on the show in the first season that you had a passion for law from an early age and it stemmed from your father's discrimination case, which we talked about in that episode, and your work on the debate team, which you just you know referenced. Could you have ever imagined you would practice anything other than law? Or was this really the path you knew you'd take, even if you didn't know you'd wind up in exactly this, you know, this kind of historic position? No, I totally feel like I'm here in a large part by accident. I mean, first of (laughs) all, like I was brainwashed to be a doctor like many South Asians. I didn't even know there was another profession. And indeed, I think my mom bribed me in my senior year of high school. She said, if you just apply to one of these six-year combined medical school, college things, then I'll give you my car. So uh, so I applied. <laughs> um, so I really thought I was going to be pre-med. And like I went to college and basically failed my biology class and realized that that's just not where my heart was. But my heart was really in education. I thought I was going to teach history. Mm. And even when I went to law school, I really went with the idea of just teaching. And even when I graduated, I thought I was going to teach. And then I did this pro bono case about a Guantanamo detainee. Mm. And I was just outraged by what happened there, that they were creating this legal black hole. And Mm. Literally, they were going to try and put him to death with no legal process. And so I got outraged by it. I decided, you know, at first I did, I was a law professor, so I like wrote law review articles, which no one read. Um, And so then I said, well, okay, I got this thing, this law degree, I guess I'm going to have to use it. And so that's what led me down that path in that case. And then when I won that case, I was 36 years old. It was my first Supreme Court argument. And we won, and that ended the military tribunals at Guantanamo, made the Geneva Conventions apply worldwide to the war on terror. Like it ended ghost prisons, waterboarding, all sorts of stuff. I was like this 36-year-old law professor, and I was like, oh, my God, we just did that? And that's when I realized the power of the law to you know, to be a force. And so it was at that point, really, that everything else follows, but not, not really before that. So it was a little bit by accident. And you had said a moment ago about the Chauvin case and about things taking a year and, you know, that feels like a long time. But I I would argue that in criminal cases, we want things to take some time. We Mm -hmm. don't want mob justice, lynch justice. Of course, that's not what you're suggesting at all. I know that. But the reason why we have these kind of prophylactic rules and structure Unlike, for example, the Guantanamo tribunals, which could have been done, they tried to want to do start to finish in a matter of days, is because by having regularized intervals, you allow inputs into the process from expert witnesses, from eyewitnesses, from counsel, lawyers, and the like. And so there's a reason for it. And, and it works well when it's in the year time frame. You're right. If it takes longer than that, you, know, you start to get to worry, particularly you know, justice delayed is justice denied. Yeah, that's actually a really helpful way to look at it, to think about it. Because, you know, particularly Um, what we were talking before about how, like, you know, everything is politicized. And the last thing you want is a verdict like this to be like, oh, that thing was rushed or something like that by, by the defenders of the defendant. I think every American can look at that trial and say, wow. Chauvin had great counsel. Prosecutors had good counsel. They had access to witnesses. They could go in and tell their stories uninterrupted mm-hmm. and and let the truth win out, um, the crucible of truth. And so mm. that's, I think, something we should celebrate. And, you know, sometimes on the left, it really bothers me that people attack the legal process or people attack Derek Chauvin's lawyer. 
no, this person is doing something really important in our system. We don't want a trial in which you don't have someone being represented by good counsel. That's a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, that's a Soviet system. That's not ours. Mm, Wow. Wow, that's something really to sit with because it can be a hard pill to swallow that a person who abuses their power and takes the life of another still deserves the best counsel. But when you think about it, when we see how much harm has been done with inadequate counsel, especially in our criminal justice system for defendants, you know, forced coercions of kids. I I just read an article about how uh, the law in Illinois has mandated that they stop essentially forcing the confession of children in the state of Illinois. And within the first paragraph of the article, they referenced, yeah, it's crazy, but that's legal, right? (laughs) I just thought, what? What's happening here? So I I suppose that if we really do want to live up to the best of our ideals, including the ways in which you so incredibly push the globe to, to make the Geneva Conventions apply to everyone, because if they don't, they don't actually apply to anyone. The reality is that if we're going to fix the legal system, we have to fix it for everyone, whether there are people we agree with or not. A hundred percent. I mean, with like the Geneva Conventions, people would often attack me saying, these are terrorists. Why do they deserve any rights? First of all, one question is, are they? You know, the whole idea of legal process is to make sure that you haven't jumped to that conclusion. So you don't want to beg the question. But the other is, you know, when we talk about these protections, they're not for the benefit of these people alone. They're also for the defendants. They're also for the benefit of us. It says something about Mm -hmm. who we are as a people. So like I typically do one death penalty case at the Supreme Court every year. And these are horrific facts. I mean, it is so hard to read Mm -hmm. what happened in a case and then to stand up and defend that person in the Supreme Court. I mean, once I remember Justice Scalia went after me, he's like, have you read what happened in the facts? Yes, that's not the issue before you. There's a legal issue, there's a process issue, and it's an important one. And I think, The founders get pilloried for any number of things, and rightly so. But one thing they did understand was, at least for some segment of the people, they would get get rights no matter what they're accused of. And I think the project of, of our American government over the last 200 years has been largely to expand who that category of people is. So it's not just white male property owners, but to something much broader than that. Um, and of course, we haven't lived up to that. But... That's the goal. It shouldn't be to cut process back for other people who we think are guilty. It should be to expand it for everyone. Mm, that's something to sit with as well, really to, to make sure we're leaning into the things we say we believe in. Now, when we talk about process, <laughs> I can't help but almost laugh because the last time you and I spoke, we were in the heart of a toothless impeachment And the day that we spoke, in fact, I think while we were recording, it was announced that no witnesses would be allowed in Trump's impeachment trial. Why doesn't true process apply to people in power? How can a man who's been committing crimes in broad daylight with the assistance of elected officials, the Josh Hawley's and the Ted Cruz's, I mean, seditious traitors to the United States, yeah. How could this have been allowed? In in what ways can process be hampered 
by power? Such a great question. And yeah, I think the first time was when when I was on before, it was during the first impeachment. They're actually, you know, let's remind them, there are two impeachments now. It's going to be twice. Um, and, <sighs> and both times, toothless and kind of a disgrace, not because of what the Democrats did. I thought both presentations, Jamie Raskin's and Adam Schiff's were incredible, but mm -hmm. because of spineless Republicans who wanted to just protect the president and not tell the truth to the American people. So I think that there was, a, you know, a little bit, this goes back to one of the problems with the founders. They celebrated this idea that the executive branch, as Alexander Hamilton said, should act with secrecy and dispatch, that we wanted to have an executive who was relatively unfettered. And they thought that you'd be electing a certain type of person to the presidency, which I don't mm -hmm. think we had for the last four years and perhaps at other points in American history. Um, they didn't anticipate a president who would so you know, blatantly abuse his powers. But we've generated 200 years of kind of legal traditions that protect the president. And like the most important mm -hmm. one of which is these Justice Department opinions that say you can't indict a sitting president, that you can't bring criminal action against them, which is what allowed Mueller and Barr to essentially say, we're not going to do anything against Donald Trump. Um, I think those opinions are just wrong. I've thought they were wrong for a long time and they need to be reconsidered. And I'd like to see Joe Biden, who, you know, in some sense has something to lose by saying a sitting president can be indicted since he is one. But I'd like to see him say, that's just not our American system because the heart of the American system, even more important than a president who acts with secrecy and dispatch is no one is above the law. That's like, yes. you go back and read the Declaration of Independence what are the, what's the kind of overarching theme of the, I think, 28 or whatever big grievances against King George III? It's that fundamental point. And mm -hmm. what we had for the last four years is a president who said, nope, I'm above the law. I can do this. I can, you know, lie, cheat, steal, and kind of get away with it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that he might be in legal jeopardy now? Because clearly he doesn't. I mean, he's saying he thinks he's going to be Speaker of the House in 2022. I can't even imagine what that would mean for our government. But the Republicans are unwilling to rein him in despite all of his all of the evidence against him, Russian interference, collusion with foreign governments. By the way, his his past mafia involvement, which was no secret in New York. So if there's no if there's no safety measures to prevent someone who's a member of an organized crime syndicate from becoming the president, to your point, you should certainly be able to indict them while they are. Is there any merit to any of this? Could he become Speaker of the House? Is he maybe going to go to jail if we can have a, a proper January 6th commission, right. uh, despite Republican stalling? What is going on here? again, from, from your angle of legal expertise? So I think the chances of him becoming Speaker of the House in 2022 are roughly equivalent to the chances of him be in being in reinstalled as president <laughs> in August of this year, which is to say zero. You know, maybe he'll be Speaker of Mar-a-Lago or something like that for a time, mm. but that's about it. And Well, I um, have heard he's crashing funerals there now because <laughs> exactly. he's desperate for attention, which is awfully depressing. <laughs> so... 
Look, I think that he is in very serious legal jeopardy and actually in two different fronts, not one. Mm. So the one that we hear a lot about, and rightly so, is this New York investigation because they now have his tax records. They've gone after and tried to flip his CFO, uh, Alan Mm. Weisselberg. They're going after Weisselberg's kids. There's a lot of reasons to be worried about that investigation, which, you know, is financial. We know that Trump is not exactly someone who dots his I's and crosses his T's when it comes to finances. So mm-hmm. having you know experienced prosecutors look into that is, I think, a very, very worrisome sign for him. The mm-hmm. other is this investigation in Georgia, because uh, there, there's, uh, you know, remember when Donald Trump tried to basically say, I just need you to find 11,780 votes or whatever. Yeah. Um, that is not exactly legal um, in our American system, to, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. And there's actually just today, uh, you know, as, as we're recording this on, on June 15th, some new information, some emails that have come out where a lawyer supposedly acting on behalf of, of Trump was involved in trying to pressure the Justice Department and others to have these bogus investigations. So I suspect that there's going to be more that's going to come out there. And you've got, again, a skilled district attorney in Atlanta who's wanting to look into this and who's opened, I think, two different grand jury investigations. Mm. So it'd be one thing if we were talking about a normal president, but we're talking about a president who played fast and loose at every turn. So Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that these criminal investigations may have some serious consequences for him. And I have to ask, as we are, you know, just a few years after the explosion of Me Too into the public discourse, perhaps into household conversations rather than backroom discussions among so many women and, and other people who've experienced harassment. What is going on with the DOJ stepping in on behalf of the, of the former guy in this E. Jean Carroll case? Is that going to stand? Is that just, again, part of the process that that is going to work itself out in some way that we can't see yet? Because I'm so upset with Merrick Garland, especially after all these years when I would imagine he would have become more sort of solidified against Trump's bully tactics. Why Why would the DOJ get involved in this case? So, Sophia, I think you're absolutely right to be upset about this. I'm upset too. And um, I, I think it's the wrong decision. So basically, uh, Jean Carroll sued Donald Trump for real uh, horrible groping and harassment Um, and then lying about it. Mm -hmm. And what Trump ordered his Justice Department to do was go in to federal court and say, when Donald Trump denied these allegations, he was acting under the scope of duties as president of the United States um, when he attacked this woman. And (laughs) therefore, A, we're going to defend him, the Justice Department, so Trump doesn't have to pay for private lawyers. And B, because you're suing someone in their official capacity and he hasn't executed any sort of waiver of immunity, you can't sue him. So case should be dismissed. And the district court judge there, Judge Kaplan, a very well-respected non-political judge said, this is bogus. Of course, this is wrong. Lying about women is not part of a president's official duties. No. So that's where things stood before the election and where I think everyone thought this would kind of end. But nope, um, the Garland Justice Department went into the appeals court and said, yes, we think that Judge Kaplan is wrong. 
Why did they do that? Well, there is this opinion from in a DC court, which kind of gives some strength possibly to this argument that, you know, if you're defending yourself uh, and you say something that's part of your official duties, but, you know, I think they read that thing way too far. And, you know, to me, it's not about who pays for the defense. We know Trump's going to stiff his lawyers anyway, so he's not no he's not going to pay for the defense no matter what. But the real thing is is that if this Garland position is accepted, it means Jean Carroll loses her lawsuit. She doesn't even get a day in court. And we were just talking before about what's the beauty of the American legal system? It's process. Mm-hmm. It's allowing both sides to go in and tell their story before a neutral adjudicator and have it decided on. Mm-hmm. And what this position, which Garland has now embraced, is no, Gene Carroll, you don't get to tell your story. Your case is over because Trump is basically immune from liability. You know, you can twist yourself into a pretzel and get to that position, but it doesn't seem right. And it doesn't seem, I think you're right, to raise, you know, all the things we've learned from the Me Too movement in the last two years. And then to have this come on top of that, I, I have a real problem with it. Well, and to your point about earlier about who Trump is. This is a man who stands accused by so many women of sexual assault and misconduct, credible accusations, including of rape by his ex-wife documented in court. This doesn't feel surprising. I think what feels surprising is that someone who we assumed is a good guy would still take the, the sort of more typical male side on this argument. I don't mean to say that it, I think Garland's doing it on the male side. I think what mm-hmm. what is really happening here, and then there's one other decision about the bar memos about uh, Trump and uh, the Mueller report, in which Garland also appealed a decision there not to release that information. I think in both cases, he's really profoundly an institutionalist and profoundly trying to say, what would a normal Justice Department do? in ordinary circumstances, and then he's going to do it. And I think Trump that Trump was not an ordinary e- president. Exactly. That's the problem. And it's like, <sighs> it's like certain times you, you know, you break a bone and the only way to heal it is by breaking it again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of what we need here. I mean, Trump so destroyed what the Justice Department was about, what the rule of law was about. Sometimes you have to actually deviate from ordinary processes in order to just get back to normal. Um, and so f- these two decisions do worry me. There have been many other ones that Garland has done, which I'm totally supportive of, like doubling the voting rights uh, enforcement and things like mm-hmm. that, which he's made absolutely the right calls. But these mm-hmm. two, I think, are problems. How do we, as a public, you know, concerned citizens, how do we rally for for more of those right calls? Is there any action we can take? Is there any noise we can make to you know demand? as you said, that no one is held above the law, including a former president. Do, do we have any recourse here as, as a constituency? We do. And it's different than before in the last four years, because what the Senate did in terms of overseeing the Justice Department was basically non-existent. The Justice Department just thumbed their nose at it. But now you actually do have really phenomenal people, particularly on the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, Mm -hmm. people like Amy Klobuchar, Dick Durbin and the like, who really care about these issues. And so I think let them know and let your voice be heard through the senators, because Mm -hmm. Garland will, I think, listen, ultimately. I mean, he's as capable a person as as it comes. And um, 
you know, his heart is in the right place. I don't doubt that for a second, unlike, you know, the pre prior occupants of the attorney generalship over the last few years who are not criminal than pretty close to it. But Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there is an opportunity here and I think we should use it. I don't think we should be like, oh, you know, you know, nothing ever gets done in Washington and it's all the same old, same old things do get done. We're already having huge change from the last four years. We actually do have a rule of law that's coming back. Yes, there are problems. There are. I don't mean to, you know, pretend there aren't. But nobody should take from our discussion that things haven't changed, you know, if not 180 degrees, 160, 170 degrees from what they were. Right. And, you know, I hear that all the time from Justice Department career people. They're so excited. They're so happy. They hung on by their, you know, toenails over the last four years. And now they're empowered to just do the right thing. They can, like, Mm -hmm. not seek a maximum sentence against a criminal defendant because the attorney general ordered them to do so. They can seek the right sentence. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of information that many of us weren't privy to. The fact that the AG was pushing for harsher sentencing, for more community harm, which is frustrating both morally and intellectually, because we have the proof. We have all the studies that show that it doesn't help. Longer sentencing and and more brutal kind of iron fist rule of the judicial system don't actually make communities safer, and they certainly don't help people rehabilitate. Those kinds of facts that you, because of the lawyer you are, because of being a former acting solicitor general, all, all of all of the things, uh, including being a New York Times bestselling author that, that you do in this space, um, you, you often will drop a casual phrase. And I'm like, wait, Neil, back up. <laughs> that was really profound. It, it is, the, is the amount of your legal knowledge that you see so many of us being so interested in, is that why you decided to launch Courtside? Because it's one of my favorite things on the internet. And, and for and for anyone listening at home, if for some reason you've been living under a rock and you haven't seen what Neil's been doing, Courtside is an IGTV project that Neil does. It's now available as a podcast and it's available on YouTube. And you started it, ironically, the day Biden was announced as our 46th president, which I say is ironic because it took a lot of days to get to the end of that election. But you cover a topic that people need to know about, and you let people into how the law works. But it's actually really exciting. I know there's probably some people being like an hour about law. That feels boring. These episodes are great. And you're covering topics, even recently, like the Tulsa race massacre of 1921, which we referenced earlier, the Rudy Giuliani raid, the Mississippi abortion case, you're really going through these timely issues and letting us in on how the mechanisms work. How how did you decide to do this? Well, thank you so much for those really sweet words, because it's obviously, you know, it's a lot of work and it's hard to do. And so to get some nice feedback, it really gives me, you know, some more steel in my spine to keep doing it. But basically, it kind of stumbled on it by accident, because when Biden was announced in November as having won the election and then Donald Trump, you know, right away contested it, I I had not even 0.0001% doubt in my mind that all of Trump's legal maneuvers were going to go nowhere. But that was not what my friends and family were feeling. They were like this law thing, you know, Trump has got all his judges and this and that. He's going to lie, cheat and steal and win this thing. And I thought 
no, you know, the one thing I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I know about the legal system and I know that Trump has tried to destroy it, but it's going to hold. And mm -hmm. so I just went on like Instagram and just said that and the thing kind of took off. And mm -hmm. so then I was like, okay, I'll do it again the next day and give some more reasons <laughs> as opposed to being off the cuff and, you know, give some numbers and stats. And then I wound up doing it every day for those, you know, whatever, two and a half months that <laughs> Trump tried to drag out the election dispute. And so it was every day and it was just, you know, it did run me into the ground. But it was also incredibly satisfying to hear comments like what you just said. And then after that, after, after we made it through election, after we made it through January 6th, I thought, you know, there is a space for this, um, but I can't mm. with all the other things I have going on, I can't do it every day, but maybe once a week. So that's why I try and do it on Sundays and try and do a different topic. And, you know, I actually think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people actually know a lot about the law and yet you can still go a little deeper. Like, so for example, we were just talking a moment ago about, mm -hmm. you know, mandatory sentencing and kind of, you know, an attorney general that kind of insists on maximum sentences. And, you know, in, in where you are in LA, you just had a district attorney's race, which is actually about in large part, this question, do yeah. you enforce three strikes laws or not as the district attorney? And, you know, there's now litigation about that as your district attorney tries to, you know, say, no, justice demands something less than that. It demands a more individualized form of sentencing. But mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, were really up in arms about what the prior district attorney was doing. And so what I want to try and do is, you know, broaden that conversation to, to more people. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I, and I feel like it, it helps a lot of us understand the technicalities and and also what is happening in terms of progress. And, you know, you brought some sanity to a, a very insane time when you first began, because it's an interesting thing to, you know, watch a 74-year-old man who's never suffered a consequence in his life because his dad's paid his way out of every single one, uh, finally have a consequence on such a large scale to see Joe Biden be the 46th president who received more votes than any president in history. I, I think it, it broke Trump's brain a little bit. And it was really reassuring for me watching him just bombastically traipse all over our legal system, knowing he had allies that care much more about their own power than the law, the Mitch McConnells of the world and the rest of them. Uh, I, I was nervous. And so you really, you know, you talked me off of a, of a couple of ledges <laughs> And it's nice to not only have a voice of reason, but as you said, uh, a friend who is providing data because you were like, no, these are the numbers and this yeah. is the law and this is just, this doesn't work like that. And I was like, oh, right. I, this isn't just a feeling I have. There's lots of facts um, and legal legalese <laughs> to back it up. So thank you for that. Um, I am curious because you talk about launching courtside, you know, right when the election results finally came in, all of all of the tallies. But just eight days before the election, Amy Coney Barrett was forced through uh, a vetting process, which also feels enraging because clearly a rushed process is not a done process. So much like Brett Kavanaugh and my wondering who paid off all of his debt and uh, all of Justice Kennedy's debt before he strangely retired to make way for Brett, I really wonder what we're going to find out about the skeletons in, in Justice Barrett's closet. And maybe there aren't any, 
but it is, to your point, the rushed process that makes it feel like there could be. To have someone like her who has been publicly part of very restrictive and discriminatory groups take the place of a woman like Ruth Bader Ginsburg feels compoundingly painful and insulting toward progress, especially for women and equality. So I, I wonder how in the midst of the election you coped with, as someone who's argued before the Supreme Court so many times, you coped with the loss of Justice Ginsburg and the, the kind of steamrolling of the Barrett confirmation. What, what was that time like? Um, you know, look, I, I think it was really hard. And I don't think it's the justices' fault, you know, either the nominees or the people who are on the court now, as much as it is the senators, and in particular Mitch McConnell, who will do anything in order to get their Supreme Court nominees through or to block qualified people like Merrick Garland from mm -hmm. even having a hearing. And what they have done is put the Supreme Court in the crosshairs of a political attack because they don't care about the institution. They just care mm -hmm. about winning. And that is so, so horrible. And I, you know, I think the court is diminished in that process because of what these Republican senators have done. And I've now had the chance to argue, I guess, three cases since Justice Ginsburg passed away. And, and honestly, Sophia, I'm just glad that the arguments this year have been virtual because like, I know I would cry if just looking at her seat and her not being there. Like at argument, like, you know, we all know like she's this, you know, fierce defender and so on. But, you know, at an argument, she would just go after you so hard, like at <laughs> anything. And like, she's so precise, just incredibly, incredibly precise. And I'm, as you can tell, not that precise. So like it would be a real challenge, but also just such a privilege to be standing there and arguing before her. And, you know, as I think about going forward, one of the things I'm most worried about is this Mississippi abortion case, which is going to mm -hmm. be heard next year by the Supreme Court, which for the first time in modern in our modern life is putting the question of Roe versus Wade squarely before the Supreme Court and whether it should be overruled. So in this Mississippi case, Mississippi passed a law that said basically restrict the restricted abortion if it's after 15 weeks. And mm -hmm. now there are other states like Texas trying to get in and trying to restrict it after even six weeks. Um, and Roe versus Wade basically said you could only restrict if you were a state abortion after the point of viability, which is about the 24th week. Mm -hmm. This is a big change. Now, I want everyone to be clear as to what happens if Roe versus Wade is overruled. It's not the Supreme Court saying abortion is illegal and criminal. It's rather saying states can pass those laws making abortion criminal and legal if illegal if they have the political ability to do so. So what that means is not in every state, like if you're in California, unlikely that you'll see an effect of the Supreme Court decision in California. But if you're in a Southern state, you would. And yes, mm -hmm. maybe some people, some women in those states will have the ability to travel to other states, but you know, that's going to vary very much by consequence, uh, by, by economics. And um, so what we are talking about here is the very possible, very realistic possibility that abortion is going to be very significantly curtailed um, reproductive rights by the Supreme Court next year. And obviously, if Justice Ginsburg were there, 
you would have the most powerful, passionate defender of reproductive justice um, imaginable, mm-hmm. but she's not. And so as a result, I do think we need to be thinking right now about what we can do. And the thing we can do is there's an act right now pending in Congress that would change the game, that would basically make these state laws that restrict abortion in violation of Roe versus Wade, they'd make them illegal. And mm. they would, it's what's called preemption power. So it's basically like right now, individual states can't regulate vaccines. That's done at the federal level. So if a state mm-hmm. like Texas wanted to say, oh, these vaccines have microchips in it and ban it, you can't because the federal government's supreme and preempts, it sweeps away contrary state laws. They can do this about abortion right away. They can do it tomorrow and wow. eliminate all of these state laws. And they can do it by a simple majority vote in the and House and Senate. this would be in Congress. This would be Congress. And, it, and then the Supreme Court, Sophia, would have nothing they could do to stop it. So mm-hmm. all we need is a simple majority vote in the House and Senate. We don't need the Supreme Court. And we can guarantee reproductive justice for everyone. And so this bill has been supported by, you know, a whole variety of different senators like Kristen Sinema and Amy Klobuchar and uh, Dick Durbin, people like that. And, you know, I think that's where the conversation should be right now. And it's a very concrete thing that listeners can do is to urge their senators to vote Mm -hmm. for this bill. Again, it's just so odd to me that this is an issue we keep running into when we understand that reproductive choice is healthcare. That pregnancy is actually one of the most life-threatening things a woman can do. And I say that as a person who can't wait to be a parent, but you know, it's, it wasn't lost on me when I was studying for my show, which you were talking to me about before we started recording, to play a cardiothoracic surgeon. The number one cause of aortic dissection in women under 40 is pregnancy. The actual life-threatening experience of that condition gets really swept under the rug because we all love pictures of babies and cute ads with little stuffed animals and little baby clothes. There's like nobody who's more into babies than I am. So I get why we're so attached, but what I don't understand is why we don't trust women and their families and their doctors to make their own health decisions. I don't understand why we pretend or the right rather pretends to care in any way about children because the moment a fetus is born and becomes a real life baby, they vote against their well-being every time. You have a, a Trump staffer, Jason Miller, giving an abortion pill to his mistress in a smoothie because he didn't want to deal with the fact that he knocked up somebody who wasn't his spouse. These are egregious differences in what we say versus what we do. And that's what really drives the frustration home for me. There's that famous saying that if men could get pregnant, you could get an abortion at every gas station in America. And the the very clear desire to simply control and dominate women's ability to make choices about their lives, their careers, their finances, and their families feels incredibly clear to me when we talk about this. So I'm heartened to hear about this bill. And I'm I'm very curious as things get more and more politicized and the sides get more and more fomented against each other, 
what do you think is the way to pierce this conversation with some sanity and some facts? Yeah, so I completely agree with you that um, at least a good chunk of the abortion restrictions are not motivated by so-called pro-life things, but by a desire to control people and in particular to control women. So I think you've put your finger on a big part of this movement. And you had a tweet just recently, which I think brings home this point and also kind of what we can do about it. And you said something like, I'm not a mother yet, but I think about this all the time. And you were talking about a school shooting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in that tweet, I saw both your desire to have children, which you were just talking about a moment ago, but your fears about it. Mm -hmm. And, and about a political party that doesn't actually often care about life. I mean, if they cared about life, they wouldn't be saying you can get a handgun like candy. Like in Texas right now, they just made it so you don't even need a permit. You know, like, I mean, you just get a handgun. And that isn't pro-life, not even close. And I think actually, you know, what you did there and drawing attention to that dichotomy is so important because people can get wrapped up and nobody wants to attack anyone for their religious views. I get that. But sometimes these aren't about religious views, they're about other things. And in exposing that, I think is 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 really, really important. And I, I just would say, you know, on guns, I think this is intrinsically, even apart from this conversation, it's time about pro-life or not, it's a very, very scary time. We have a, a Supreme Court that for the first time in 200 years recognized an individual right to bear arms back in 2008 and is now poised next year to consider whether to ban any restrictions on the carrying of firearms in the New York case. And I have the companion case out of Hawaii, which is about the open carrying of firearms, which even though it was a very conservative court, agreed that Hawaii and all the other states could have such laws. But this U.S. Supreme Court is, you know, taken this case and there's a big fear that it's going to really change the landmark of even existing gun control regulation, which is fairly mm -hmm. tepid as it is, but make yeah. it even easier to carry a gun than it is now um, and to openly carry it or to carry it in a concealed way as the New York case is. And somehow we've just kind of started to go overboard on some things which just don't have any common sense behind them whatsoever. So I just found like your discussion of this, even just on a few characters, very moving to me. And I think more of us need to really talk about these fears that we have, um, which are not irrational when you see how many shootings there are and how many people die. I mean, the number of mass shootings are breathtaking and terrifying. And then you see, to your point, what happens when people are just allowed to carry weapons with them. I mean, there was a case, which I actually do believe was in Texas this week. A father pulled his gun in a road rage incident, did not shoot the other driver who he was threatening with the gun, but upon getting back in his vehicle, shot his own nine-year-old son in the chest. And all I can think is that guy had no business having a gun on him. And if it was at home, locked up safely, he could have gotten as mad as he wanted and screamed and yelled and like given the guy the bird and done all the things that, you know, plenty of people have done at their worst moment on the road. But a kid wouldn't be in critical condition. And the fact that the legislature in that state is not going to charge that man for shooting his own child is a very scary 
to me, signal of how far into the absurd this argument has gotten. You know, I, I thought that Pete Buttigieg made such a great point during the Democratic primary. 17 of the candidates came to the Iowa State Fair for the Every Town Gun Sense Forum. And I was very honored to help with the event and to speak there. And he said, you know, everybody says we have a right to bear arms and, you know, defend ourselves against a tyrannical government. There shouldn't be a line. And he's like, well, I'm a veteran of war and you shouldn't be carrying the gun I was carrying in a war zone. He said, and there is in fact a line. You're not allowed to own a predator drone. You don't get to have that. The U.S. military does, but you don't. I think the time for citizens should have the weapons the military has is over. And and it was it was incredible because he made people laugh at at a day where during a day where we were talking about things that were not funny, but he cracked the veneer of the of that sort of you know vibrating outrage and just made people realize that this is ridiculous, this conversation. A hundred percent. And you know. When 94% of America supports a federal background check system, I don't understand why we can't get this done. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, it's also so interesting, the hypocrisy, because Republicans always say, oh, we believe in the founder's intent of the Constitution, and it's got to be strictly construed. Well, the founders never thought you had a right to, a, you know, AR-15, a machine gun or something like that. No. Their idea of a gun was a musket that like a took like three- single shot musket. <laughs> exactly. It took like three minutes to load. You had to push the gunpowder in and, you know, everything else. I mean, it was not these kinds of things. But then all of a sudden they want to throw out founders' intent and the like. And, and just one kind of cool kind of law geek thing for your listeners right now. There's a whole new field in constitutional law that's developed over the last few years enabled by modern technology. And it uses like linguistics and precision, like databases. And what they do Mm. is they dump all of the newspapers, all the commentary about words like that were used at the founding in in, editorials and the like. So they look at what is a militia and the phrase well-regulated militia in the Second Amendment was well-regulated. And so these scholars now can have access to all these databases and they've gone back and looked at it and they've basically just debunked the idea that the Second Amendment is an individual right. It was a right of the militia and it required regulation. And that's all stuff that's newly available to us because of modern technology. But nonetheless, you still have conservatives saying, on the one hand, strict intent, founder's intent. But then when it gets a result they don't like, oh, then we never hear about that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Same thing with like affirmative action, which may come to the Supreme Court, you know, next year. Um, Yeah, the Harvard case, right? Yes, exactly. And so, you know, there's the equal protection clause, which guarantees equal protection of all the laws. But we know at the time in the 1868, when it was passed, they definitely thought you could have different and extra rights for African-Americans at the time. The whole Freedmen's Bureau was all about that. So they had been pretend, oh, no, we can't care about founders intent then. So it's just it's a game that's been used for when it suits them. To, they they trot out these tropes, but when it hurts the left, then they they're like, oh yes, we believe in our methodology. I mean, just this morning, the day you and I are recording this, this morning Mitch McConnell said on camera, by the way, he's so brazen that he would never allow if he got the Senate back, he would never allow Biden to fill a Supreme Court seat after what he did for Trump. And it's it is so 
infuriating. And it, it honestly, and you know, I, I think he was such a phenomenal president, but it, it makes me so mad that Obama didn't fight harder to demand Merrick Garland get a seat. It makes me so mad that, that the left has been defanged at the executive level and, and, and at every level beneath it, you know, in the Senate, in the Congress. It's like, what is happening that they keep bringing Uzis to knife fights and we're like standing there with our little blades going, we can't figure out why we can't get a bar- bipartisan solution. I'm like, get over it and start doing your job. Like, you know, we got we got every branch for a reason because people want to see action. They want change. They want better economic policies. We want to have a thriving middle class, not just a few, you know, autocratic billionaires. We want to see environmental protections, which by the way, benefit conservative hunters and leftist climate scientists. Like it's for everyone. And and this all of this stuff coming up, you know, when you talk about it, gun control and affirmative action and abortion and and even the Republicans blocking the one six commission, I just I feel afraid that they're gonna bully us into the ground on on all of this progress that's been so hard won in the last decades. Yeah, 100%. I I share a lot of those fears. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell doesn't care about institutions. He doesn't care about democracy, doesn't care about government, doesn't care about the Supreme Court. (laughs) And so for him to say, I'm just not going to let any nominee through, no matter who they are, which is what he already did once, is just so horrific. And, you know, when he blocked Garland, that was a book very consequential because Garland was going to replace Justice Scalia, who had passed away in February of 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, if Garland had replaced Scalia, it would be the first time in our lifetime since 19, I think, 72, when the Supreme Court had five of the nine justices uh, appointed by a Democratic president. So that was a big game changer for our entire lives. The Supreme Court has been dominated by Republican appointees. So it really mattered. And so now McConnell is saying, oh, and now it's, by the way, six to three in terms of Republican appointees to the Supreme Court. And now you have McConnell saying, well, I'm going to try and lock it in permanently and not get anyone confirmed. And I think there's only one thing that should be talked about now in response to that, which is, okay, McConnell, if you're not going to pack anyone, if you're not going to allow anyone through in 2022, then you're basically saying to us Dems, we have one year left to get the job done. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because we don't know who's going to win. And that means going to a larger Supreme Court, not nine, but 11 or 13 to pay, to make them pay for this monkeying around with our constitutional order Mm -hmm. that they have levied. And, you know, I'm the last person to say, you know, I want court packing or anything like that because, you know, the Supreme Court generally works well as an institution. But what McConnell is doing here is forcing the Democrats to do that because, He's playing mm-hmm. hardball. And as you say, you know, you can't just bring a feather to this knife fight. You've got to mm-hmm. actually bring something and you've mm-hmm. got to make him understand that these actions have serious consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's frustrating is that all the work we've done, uh, you know, to advance voter registration, all of the education around elections, all of the activism of so many groups he's essentially saying he won't allow the will of the people. He's ignoring the 81 million of us who voted for these policies. And it it does make me curious as we see 
all of these bills around the country being put forth by conservatives to restrict voting rights, voter suppression, which people are calling the new Jim Crow. What exactly is being considered on the state and federal level? And how can those of us who are alarmed by this very un-American, undemocratic trend, how can we get involved to let lawmakers know that this is unacceptable? It's such a great question because the modern Republican Party is basically an anti-democracy party. They're just mm-hmm. afraid of letting people vote. And what they're trying to do is restrict it. And the Mitch McConnells of the world pat themselves on the back because they say, oh, look, we didn't let the one six insurrection happen. Oh, look, we didn't support Donald Trump's lost crazy lawsuits over the election, although many of them, of course, mm-hmm. did, particularly in the House. Um, But that's such a low bar, the fact that they didn't support the insurrection. I'm sorry, that's not going to get me any, they're not going to get them any points with me or anyone else. And so what they've done since, in in now 12 different states since the election, uh, have passed 22 different laws that have restricted the ability to vote. And they do all sorts of things. They like, you know, remove ballot boxes from poorer neighborhoods. They make it harder to have early voting. They require more onerous forms of ID, all sorts of stuff. And the problem is that we now don't have the tool that we've had for most of our lifetime to Mm. safeguard against this. Because in 1965, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act. And Section Mm. 5 of the Voting Rights Act said before any state or locality could change any of its voting rules, even where a ballot box was, they had to get it pre-cleared by the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., or by a federal court Mm -hmm. to just say, hey, there's no downside to minority voting. There's no retrogressive effect. And right after President Obama won, I was sent in to defend that law in the Supreme Court, and I won it eight to one in the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, And Congress had just re-ratified that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act 421 to three in the House and 98 to zero in the Senate. Overwhelmingly, Republicans and Democrats believed in the right to vote back then. And then in 2013, the Supreme Court flipped and reversed its position five to four in a case called Shelby County, which is just to go back to Justice Ginsburg for a second, one of her greatest dissents, one of her greatest Mm -hmm. written opinions is, is that case. And what the Supreme Court said is you can't do that. You can't isolate out Southern states basically and make them pre clear their voting restrictions. So now we don't have that anymore. We don't have a real effective check whenever these states pass these things. And so pending, and you know, I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act um, Mm -hmm. or HR1, uh, you know, the For the People Act. These are different ways to try and restore those provisions of 1965 and make them even stronger than they were before. Mm -hmm. And I think they're essential because like, And this used to be something every American agreed on, as I say, 421 to three in the House, 98 to zero in the Senate. Mm. Just have people have the right to vote. You know, like, look, if if you're so afraid, if your entire mandate is to basically just make it harder to people to vote for people to vote, that says something about your policies. It doesn't say, you know, so they're really afraid and that's their strategy. Um, I don't think it'll work. I think that one way or another, these, the, John Lewis Act will get passed, and it's going to have a profound effect on these games that are being played. Do we have to end the filibuster to get any of this done? 
Well, uh, you know, you might or might not. I mean, my view is that the filibuster, which requires 60 votes now by kind of Senate custom in order to get anything passed through the Senate, shouldn't apply to things like voting because the whole idea behind a voting rights bill is to expand the number of people who can vote. Um, and to have an anti-majoritarian rule like the filibuster come in and block that, to me, is fundamentally inconsistent with what democracy is all about. You want to have a filibuster for something like, you know, whether it should be National Turkey Day or something? Okay, fine. I have no problem with that. But, <laughs> but you know, on something as fundamental as the right to vote, it seems to me the height of irony to have a small minority of people be able to block the majority from being able to vote. Um, that's mm -hmm. just, you know, that's, again, when we think about what's the Declaration of Independence about, one of the big values behind the Declaration of Independence, no one is above the law. Another one is that idea of the right to vote, no taxation without representation. Mm -hmm. And right now, there are a whole heck of a lot of people who effectively have no representation and yet taxation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you think this moves forward. How how do you think it's possible to have a filibuster over certain things and not over the things that are really pressing for democracy? What what kind of legal change would be required for that? Well, it's not as much legal change as political. It requires basically Mansion to say, hey, you know, this filibuster thing has gotten out of control, and hmm. it can get out of control in a limited instance, like trying to block the Voting Rights Act. Or in a procedural way, because like the filibuster, again, conservatives talk about original intent, founders, and so on. The original filibuster was not like, oh, you just wake up and 40 people say, eh, I'm not going to let that through. You actually had to go and speak on the Senate floor and talk mm -hmm. and talk. It was a speaking filibuster. And of course, even people in Washington, D.C. run out of things to say. And so it was limited by basically the human condition. But now it's just like this just automatic, like, eh, 40 people don't want it, it won't go through. Um, and Ridiculous. so you could either, yeah, so you could either return to what it used to be, or you can carve out certain things from it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they've already, by the way, the Republicans have already carved out Supreme Court nominations from it. You know, all three of President Trump's nominees <laughs> to the Supreme Court, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, all but they broke the fill they they none of them had a filibuster proof majority. I think the highest number had fifty five or so votes for it for for the candidate. So but they the Republicans then said, Oh, we don't need to bother with a filibuster for that. Now there's probably nothing more important than who you nominate to the Supreme Court. So if that isn't subject to the filibuster, it's very hard for me to see how the Voting Rights Act should be subject to it. That feels really fair. That actually makes me feel hopeful that we might be able to get some of these things done. And I, I, I want that. I mean, I, I recall that last time you were here, you said you still felt hopeful about our democracy. Do you still have that hope? Is, is there more of it perhaps now? I do, I, I do have more hope. I mean, I think first of all, we've just seen over the last five months an experiment in government working. I mean, you mm -hmm. just think about the number of vaccines in our arms mm -hmm. and in our loved ones' arms and our communities' arms. And it's mm -hmm. not just, you know, wealthy communities. It's, you yeah. know, it's all, all across the land, maybe not perfectly equally, of course, but it's still a remarkable achievement, not just of science, but of government, of good government. And yeah. 
I think we're seeing a Justice Department that's starting to be fairer and do the right thing. And that's also true with progressive prosecutors at the state and local level, Illinois, just getting rid of cash bail, for example. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just remarkable. So I am optimistic about that. But I do think there are stumbling blocks. And I don't know Senator Manchin. I've never met him. And I I have every reason to believe he's very principled about this stuff. But that's Mm -hmm. why I think everyone needs to have him hear your voice. Because Mm -hmm. this man now holds the fate of basically, is a majority of the country going to be able to speak and get their legislation through? Or are we going to be subject to the tyranny of the minority? Mm -hmm. And if people let him know that the majority rule is the fundamental ground rule in our American government and that he's in the way, maybe, again, you don't get rid of the filibuster entirely, but you do at least carve it out for things that really mm-hmm. matter, yeah. starting with Supreme Court appointments, which the Republicans already did, and moving beyond that to voting uh, yeah. and maybe some other things. That feels great. I feel like we should organize a campaign around that. You're the campaign type. I'm, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I'm just a I, lawyer. <laughs> I'll, I'll, make, I'll make a couple of calls. I, um, I get excited when, when you outline pathways to progress because it, it does reinvigorate me to feel like it's possible, to feel like there's hope to be had. And I think we need that, especially when we are demanding transparency and we're asking ourselves to be honest about, you know, the threats ahead. I think true progress comes with honesty. And if I may, it it makes me think a bit about something that that isn't about the legal system, but rather is, is more personal. Last time you joined me on the show, I asked you my favorite question. I asked you what in your life is a work in progress? And you actually gave two answers. And I'd love to check in on those. The first was for your personal life and was about balance. And I'm wondering how you're doing with that. And and the other was American democracy. You You talked about seeing it as a work in progress. So how are you balancing your personal life and American democracy, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the questions. Um, the balance is, uh, you know, maybe going a little bit better. Not not great, I have to say. Um, you know, I felt like the last year there's just been so much to do and so much important stuff. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I just said this to myself right after Donald Trump won the next day after the election in 2016. I, I looked at myself in the mirror and honestly said, it sounds hokey, but I said to myself, I never want you to look in the mirror and go to sleep and not say, did you do everything you can Mm. to stand up for people and protect against this threat? And that continued after the election for a bit. Um, But I'd like to, you know, I'm starting, I'm exercising every day now. So that's, that's, that's a plus, Um, you know, that's post-election, you know, so that's, (laughs) that's good. So that part's going pretty well in terms of the American democracy thing. um, I have spent the last year developing this TV show. Hopefully it will happen with Rob Reiner and Jordan Klepper and some others. And um, I'm optimistic that that can be part of our contribution to the Mm. next generation to trying to really reach people and to celebrate the greatness of our constitution and our way of life and to tell some stories. Some are painful stories too, as there Mm. are in all great families and all great stories. There are bad moments and not to hide them, but to learn Mm -hmm. from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that feels so, so important. Anything else? You want to add another work in progress to the list or are those really covering your bases? That's it for for this season, but uh, have me back and we'll see. (laughs) Okay, perfect. In season three, we'll see what else is in the mix. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Neil. I, I just appreciate your candor, your expertise, your intellect, and, and your inspiration, really. Oh, thank you so much. A real honor. Mm-hmm.